This is the Stanley Avenue Church of Christ podcast. We are going to be going through the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 2 this week. Genesis chapter 2, we had actually left off in at the end of cha- uh, verse 3, uh, which in a way concludes uh, chapter 1. And then we're going to see the beginning of this next section here, the account of the heavens and earth when they were created. And what we want to see in this is not just to look at all the differences and think that there's some kind of a a disharmony or disunity in chapters 1 and chapter 2, but instead I want us to see this through the eyes of the way the Israelites would have seen the details presented here in chapter 2 and make the specific correlation to their circumstance as they would have seen there was great value in uh, in telling us this creation account in multiple different ways. We saw last week that chapter 1 mirrors the Exodus account what we're going to see this time is that Genesis 2 is going to mirror the uh, the law, the tabernacle, and the system of priesthood that God set up. So I'm going to be reading from the NET Bible. You're free to follow along uh, however you wish. But we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 4, read through the rest of the chapter. This is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and heavens. Now no shrub of the field had yet grown over the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The Lord formed the man from the soil of the ground, and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted an orchard in the east, in Eden, and there he planted the man he formed. The Lord made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree which was pleasing to look at and good for food. Now the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. Now a river flows out of Eden to water the orchard, and from there it divides into four head streams. The name of the first is Pishon, and it runs through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is pure. Pearls and lapis luzi are also there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It runs through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and to maintain it. Then the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat fruit from every tree of the orchard, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a companion for him, who corresponds to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every living animal of the field, and every bird of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And after, and whatever the man would call each living creature, that was its name. So the man named all the animals, the birds of the air, the living creatures of the field. But for Adam... No companion who corresponded to him was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall asleep 
fall into a deep sleep, and while he was asleep, he took part of the man's side and closed up the place with its flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the part he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites with his wife, and they will become one family. And the man and the wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So here this account clearly is just slightly different in the details that it provides, but again, we don't need to see any particular contradiction. Rather, what I want to focus on is the way that the Israelites may have perceived this. Um, while chapter 1 probably would have reminded them of the exodus that they would have seen with their own eyes, chapter 2 here is going to hopefully remind them of both the tabernacle itself and the, uh, the promised land that they were about to enter. That the tabernacle was supposed to be some kind of a pseudo land of promise that they had temporarily until they entered the real land of promise. Um, and so we have uh, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, I think is supposed to remind them that uh, things weren't quite as they should be yet. And we can clearly see that as we read uh, the Exodus account and even their journey through the wilderness. Look, they had been saved from Egypt. They had been brought out of Egypt, but they were not quite as they should have been. Though they had been created, they had no real form. They had no real fruits. They, they had lots of problems. God would take care of them, but the rains hadn't come yet. So I, I wonder if that's supposed to remind them of the care that he would give them in the land, that rains were such an important part of how an agriculture uh, and an agriculture society would, uh, would formulate. So that was one of the curses given in, in Deuteronomy, is if they did not listen to God's law, God would withhold the rains from them. So uh, during the wilderness, they didn't have rains to come on them. They, they did not get the full blessings of the land while in the wilderness, but God still did take care of them. He caused wells and springs to come up to take care of them while they were in the wilderness. And of course, the wilderness would have been a very barren, dry place. And that's the way that uh, uh, earth is depicted right here at the beginning of chapter 2. A barren place, a place where uh, there were no rains to create this place. And yet, God makes a, uh, a garden. And so this lush place uh, would have stood out as very, being very different from the rest of the barren land. Likewise, Palestine, Canaan, uh, the land uh, that would become Israel's, was supposed to stand out as a very lush and prosperous land, uh, more so than any of the other places around it. No, it wasn't that way just because the land itself was just so desirable. It, it was decently desirable in its heyday. But what made it so prosperous was going to be, of course, God's presence amongst them. 
and when the people would trust God and obey his law, then God would take care of them and their land would be a garden flowing with milk and honey, which is the way he described it to them in the wilderness. And the land and the Garden of Eden here in chapter 2 is described in many similar ways. Uh, this lush place, it's flowing with all sorts of good things, all the gold, all the stones, all the water you could ever want. It's got everything. I think they were supposed to be reminded. Uh, the land of, of Canaan was supposed to be their Garden of Eden that they would come into. And it's interesting that um, uh, uh, in the midst of this were the Tree of Life and the Tree of, of Knowledge of Good and Evil. This again was supposed to be what the children of Israel were. They were supposed to have the key, the pathway, the, uh, the, the trees as it were, to knowledge of God, to the knowledge of good and evil, to life itself. The nations were supposed to flock to the Israelites to have access to life and the knowledge of God. And that access was supposed to be in the midst of God's people. More so, a little bit more literally for the people, uh, perhaps we see that the tabernacle itself is being depicted with a lot of this. So when, when you read the description of the tabernacle, there are a lot of plants and garden imagery. When you read about the way that Solomon constructed the temple, tons of, of plants and fruits and vines and trees uh, are depicted in the carvings and in the castings throughout the temple. And similar things are going on in the tabernacle as well. So the tabernacle was supposed to invoke this imagery of the Garden of Eden, uh, a lush garden in the midst of a wilderness, a place flowing with, uh, not just with milk and honey, but a place where gold and precious stones were, the, the way that the gold was supposed to overlay everything uh, in, the in the temple and in the tabernacle, and that the, uh, the priests were to have these special stones representing the 12 tribes on their garb as well. So I, I do think that that the tabernacle was supposed to remind them of Eden, or uh, another way to say that would be the description of Eden here was supposed to remind them of the tabernacle, which they could see as well. So you've got in verses 10 through 14 all the different things, all the lush properties of the garden, uh, I think reminders of, of, again, the beauty and the majesty of, of the temple, the fact that there were uh, four uh, rivers, and that kind of reminds us of the four sides of the tabernacle. God wanted the tabernacle constructed as a square, as a box, where there were four sides, and there were four camps of Israel that were placed on the four sides, and here we've got four rivers that are flowing out. So in a way, it's it's almost like, you know, God is the source of life in the in the midst of his people. He is the tree of life. He is the, the, the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil, and from his midst come out the streams of life uh, and the streams of knowledge into the entire camp of Israel which surrounds it. And that seems to me a, a valuable point to make here. The fact that the garden is placed in the east. Uh, it is interesting that if the, if the Garden of Eden was the first place created, why is it said that it's in the east? Um... You know, maybe that's just a description of geographical location of, of where most of the readers would have been. But also remember that if you were uh, 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 one of the Israelites leaving Egypt, what direction were you going to go to the promised land? Well, you were going east. And so, uh, again, this is another way of reminding them of their journey into the, the promised land.
And then God takes the man, in verse 15, and he puts him in the garden, just like he desired to take the Israelites, the man, the, the people, the nation that he had just formed out of the dust, and uh, intended to put them into Canaan. For a purpose, he put Adam, the man, in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Uh, Isaiah, uh, you remember, uh, chapter 5, and then is also used by Jesus' parable in uh, Mark uh, 12, for example, of the vineyard. God planted a vineyard, and he put all sorts of things in it, protections and, and plants, and then he put laborers in that vineyard in order to keep it and to grow and to, uh, and to, uh, and to take care of it. And that is the same thing that God has done here, that God has, has created a land, prepared it, and he has put the Israelites in it to keep it, to take care of it. Now it's clear in Isaiah's context, and then even more clear in Jesus's, that his intention is not that they take care of physical stuff uh, that may have had very significant mirrors uh, to what they were really supposed to take care, taking care of, which is hearts, souls, persons, pathways to God. They were supposed to be taking care of God's ordinances, God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's law, uh, and each other. And so this was why God placed them in the land, to be lights to the Gentiles, to be righteous individuals who would show the world what it means to extend mercy, kindness, goodness, holiness, righteousness. This is why he put them in the land. And he told them, of course, uh, told Adam, they were free to eat from any tree in the garden. Uh, likewise, when they entered Palestine, they were free to eat all of it. Now, when they first entered the land, it's interesting that God did put restrictions on the first uh, several years, I believe, of produce in the land. After uh, I forget exactly how many it was, two, two and a half, three, four years, um, they were supposed to let the uh, the fruits of the trees sit and stay because it kind of represented the uh, uh, represented what the uh, what the old land and its evils were like. Um, so in a way, this does have a mirror as they enter into the land. They're, they were allowed to eat uh, from many of the things. They were allowed to take over and live in houses. They were able to harvest crops right away, but they were to give first fruits to God. Likewise, this tree of life, the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil, were special trees. And the knowledge of good and evil here is the one tree that said that they cannot eat. They are prohibited from eating it. Why is that? Well, I have long been of the opinion that it, the tree of knowledge is not an evil tree. And that's not why God wanted them to not eat it. Not because it was bad, but because it was holy. It was special. And just as the Israelites were told throughout the law that there were many things that they were not to do or to touch, it didn't always have to pertain with that thing being bad. For example, the Ark of the Covenant was something that they were not to touch, otherwise they would die, uh, because it was so holy. Likewise, the knowledge of good and evil in this case was supposed to be treated as holy, and if they violated that holiness, they would incur punishment and death upon themselves. And much of the same is said to the priesthood uh, as they are to conduct their operations at the, at the tabernacle. That much of what they do is supposed to be holy and special 
uh, to take care of what they touch, otherwise they would die. And the knowledge of God, the law itself, remember that the, the commandments of God that were carved on the stone were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. And then that was placed inside the, the inner sanctuary, which was inside the outer sanctuary, which was inside the, the tabernacle court, etc. In a way, the Ten Commandments are this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And remember what Paul said in, in Romans chapter 7, said, Unless I knew that the law said do not covet, I wouldn't have even thought about coveting. But since it's said to covet, now it produces in me coveting of all kinds. So... Likewise, this knowledge of good and evil uh, then becomes to Israel a source of stumbling in the long run. Not because it is bad. Uh, Paul, remember, said, no, the, the law is good. It's because we are the bad ones. We are the failures, not, um, not God's laws, not God's righteousness. So in a similar way, God places the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. It is my opinion that God always intended for mankind to eat of this fruit. Uh, it was just prohibited in the moment until he could teach them the way he wanted to teach them. Uh, but we're going to find in chapter 3 that mankind often is the case, wants the easy way out, wants to do it their way, wants to rely on somebody else other than God. And that ultimately was the problem. Likewise, God wanted the people of Israel to have access to him in the holy of holy places, but they needed to go about it his way. It was their own sins that were keeping them apart. Likewise, it was the sin of Adam and of Eve that would uh, cause the problems later. So, a lot of correlations to holiness, separation, and the care of this commandment symbolized by the tree of knowledge and the tree of life uh, later on. So God is giving both life and knowledge to the Israelites through the law, access through the tabernacle uh, to the holiness, the forgiveness, the sacrifices of God. They just had to be very careful to go about it his way. Now in verse 18, God says, It is not good that man be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So, okay, I'm, I'm going to break uh, the, uh, the analogy between this chapter and next chapter. So just be aware of that. Uh, this is just a suggestion about one way to look at this text. In this chapter, I wonder if the connection is supposed to be that God gave the Israelites as a community. They were supposed to be a nation of priests to God, uh, representations, communicators of God's will between uh, him and the nations. That's who the nation was supposed to be. But it wasn't good enough um, that all the people knew the law. It, it, they needed help uh, actually accomplishing God's law. And likewise, when the people exited Egypt, they needed a lot of help. They needed a special priesthood to help them do their work of holiness and peacekeeping with the nations. So God set aside from the people the priests. And the priests God took from uh, out of the people of Israel. So uh, just as God is taking Eve, the woman, out of the side of Adam, likewise God takes the tribe of Levi out of the side and out of the midst of, of the Israelites, and he forms the tribe of Levi into its own little mini-community. 
No other tribe is, is as self-sufficient regulated as the Levites were. And so there's uh, the Levites were supposed to be a self-sufficient in a way, not fully self-sufficient, but almost like their own person, almost like their own nation. And then the two, the, the Israelites uh, as a whole, the tribes, and then the Levites, uh, the priesthood especially, were supposed to then function in harmony with one another. They were entering kind of this obligatory contract with one another, almost like a marriage, in which the people relied on the Levites, and the Levites relied on the people. Uh, it was the people's job to care for and to take care of and to provide for the Levites, and it was the Levites' job to, in return, help the Israelites to accomplish God's holiness. And so God is creating the foundation of the of the human society and cultural interaction with a man and a woman, a husband and a wife in this family. And of course, as they would have children, uh, they would be the mother and the father. They have roles to play, uh, that they are independently responsible for their own work, but they must rely on each other, they must take care of each other, they have obligations to one another. And they need to see that they should be united in this. The tribes were not to put themselves up over the Levites, and the Levites were not to put themselves up over the tribes. They were supposed to separate, in verse 24, the leaving the father and mother. Uh, the people were supposed to separate from their idols. They were supposed to separate from Egypt. They were supposed to separate from their pagan influences and join themselves to the Levites and uh, to, to form this, this relationship with them so that they could be aided and helped in uh, accomplishing God's purpose for them in the new land. And of course, the chapter ends with saying Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Likewise, when God first calls the Israelites and the Levites, they are helplessly um, uh, ignorant of their own faults, their failures, their own positions, they are they are vulnerable people. And that's the position that Satan finds them in, in the wilderness, just like he's going to find the people both in the wilderness and in Palestine. So as we look forward to Israel's future, we're going to look forward now to chapter 3, which we'll cover next, uh, which will be looking for the ways in which the people in the land of Canaan how were they supposed to behave? How did Satan try to draw them out and to kill the nation which God has set up?